everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Vast Podcast. And I'm excited because I'm not doing this intro by myself. What's up, everyone? Like I have been. I got Jake with me. What's up, man? It's another good day in Los Angeles. Yeah. We just um, just finished an amazing conversation. With a man named Paul Anleitner. Yeah. Who is a brilliant thinker, mm-hmm. has a master's in Christian thought. And man. I found this conversation absolutely riveting like yeah. i wish it went on for another mm-hmm. hour or so yeah we're definitely gonna have him back mm-hmm. on he's uh he's on youtube he's the host of the deep talks podcast uh he had an article out that we're gonna link to um in the show notes called the god we thought was dead yeah which is just a uh just a phenomenal overview of of where we're at now and yeah and where and he has going. a really interesting perspective in in that uh we are we have reached the end of the secular age mm-hmm. um which is uh, a really, really cool idea. Mm-hmm. So I think you guys are going to find this conversation very helpful yep. um, and very exciting. We yep. hope you enjoy. Yeah, it's really good. Before we jump into it, don't forget, follow us on Instagram, subscribe, uh, leave us a rating, leave us a comment uh, on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this today. It honestly helps get the word out. Share this around with some folks you think will find this interesting. And uh, let's jump into this conversation. Okay, so we are here with Paul, and I know I'm going to pronounce your name. Ann Leitner. Mispronounced. Ann Leitner. Hey, where'd it go? Nice. Nailed it. Um, uh, thanks for being with us on the podcast. Uh, I'm just honored you guys invited me on. I'm looking forward to com- uh, having the conversation together. Uh, yeah, thanks. We, uh, I came across your work through a friend of mine, Chris, who sent me a link to your podcast. So you, uh, you host the Deep Talks podcast. Is that right? Give me just give us the vision for that. Like, where, what did that come about, and and what are some stuff you explore there? Yeah, so I originally had planned when I when I got done with my master's, I have a master's in Christian thought, and my original intention was just go straight into my PhD and teach, you know, university or teach at a seminary, et cetera, et cetera. And then as I was going through, like, um, start prepping for my PhD applications, I was talking to other professors and people in academia, and they're like, hey, bud, just a heads up, now might not be the time if you're looking for something stable in academia. (laughs) And I was like, you know, had already done bivocational ministry for, you know, for most of my life, had been in a pastoral role, but also teaching at Christian high schools, theology and biblical studies, and the you know, the thought of uh, more uncertainty and potentially needing like travel around the country. So I was like, well, that's kind of disappointing. I really enjoy, um, I'd, I'd really love to help people learn the things I wish I would have known 15, 20 years ago. And so um, and I'm talking with, you know, these professors and people in academia, they're like, hey, just because um, humanities departments in general are shrinking and people aren't going to go into debt for the stuff doesn't mean their deep questions about God, life, and their place in it all are going away. They're just going to turn to new mediums. Mm. And I, that got me thinking um, just about, well, what are those new mediums that people are going to? And so like as a pastor, I'd sit down, especially with young guys in particular, coming out of their college years into their 20s, and they're going through all the the typical questions that you go through when you enter into your early adult life, especially if you've grown up in the church. And I would like try to give them resources. We'd get together and have these group conversations. And I go, man, I just can't hand somebody that's got like a like a degree in engineering or communications. I can't just turn them, turn into them like a systematic theology textbook. 
you know <laughs> um mm-hmm. that's like again like if i got something going on with my car and it, it it feels like it's on the verge of verge of breaking down and someone just hands me an, an engineering textbook mm. it's not going to do me much good i just don't have the experience to jump into that and i was just looking around this was you know four years ago i was looking around the landscape of like podcasts and youtube channels and at the time like four years ago there wasn't as much quality content like the work you guys are doing and others um and so i was like well maybe instead of just having these meetings with with people like I'll start recording lectures and interviews and kind of make that my, my classroom. So, mm-hmm. um, I started that four years ago. It's called deep talks, exploring theology and meaning making. And it's really focused on exploring the intersection of theology with all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. So intersection of theology and philosophy, theology and science, theology mm-hmm. and culture and the arts. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what the the podcast is all about. Cool. Yeah, I um, we'll put it in the show notes, but uh, I think the first video I watched of yours was the one with Andy Squires and John Mark McMillan, and it was like it's like a three and a half hour, just like epic uh, <laughs> yeah. conversation. And I was gonna listen to it on the podcast, and then I think you said like, um, "Hey, if you're listening to this, like it comes across better on YouTube. Go go watch it on on YouTube." I think you may have said on the, in the intro. And man, like, uh, not only was it brilliant, but I legitimately felt the presence of God, like just mm. watching and listening to you guys have that conversation. And so oh, had been wanting to figure out a way to get you on the podcast. And then this article came out. Was it in Christianity Today that this article uh, no, came out? Ecstasis. That's right. Ecstasis, which is like, um, it's it's in the Christianity Today family, but it's focused more on exploring the connection between like theology and the arts and poetry and beauty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that was a piece called the God we thought was dead. So, um, and then I read that, when did we read Mm -hmm. that? A couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll link to both of those in, in the show notes. And so I want to just like dig deeper into, to that article. Um, one of the things I loved about the article was at the beginning, you referenced the power team. You referenced uh, <laughs> not explicitly. The, not only, explicitly. Only those that have experienced it could know that that was a power team reference. Yes. So, and the, the reason I knew it was a power team reference is because I grew up in the church that the power team started out of. <laughs> no way. Yes. Yes. Um, and you rip a phone book. <laughs> I. What's funny if is I can rip a phone book. I actually they taught me how the the, the phone book ripping works. Are you dead serious? Kid. Dead serious. It's all about the way you fold it. Wait. So, so that's not a matter of strength. No. It's not a matter. I mean, a 12-year-old kid could do it. Like, I think I was probably what? 12 or 13 when I ripped the phone wow. book. It's all about how you bend it. And- I had the power team in my church in Did Australia you? when I was a kid. Okay. They, like, traveled across the ocean to come and be yeah. with us, and I was mesmerized. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, yeah, the power team reference, and then, because and then, you sort of start off talking about, like, 90s youth group culture, right? I got saved in 99 and was the epitome of that. Like, you, you mentioned, like, Jesus Freak. I think my AIM Instant Messenger profile name was, like, Jesus Freak 1986. <laughs> so I literally was like, how did this guy seem to sum up the entire first four or five years of my faith in, in one <laughs> sentence? Awesome. But, uh, man, this article was, was honestly phenomenal. You make a statement. Oh, thank you. Uh, early on, you say philosophy was not an enterprise that my particular Christian context celebrated. Talk to us about that. Like, uh, why do you think that is? Um, and that's something yeah, we well, often talk about. Is, I should probably is, I should probably try to name with a more degree of specificity mm-hmm. some adjectives to describe my particular context. Because certainly, there's features you both have brought up about the power team, and I 
I wrote a little bit about, you know, the weird like Christian cliche slogan t-shirt thing that mm-hmm. was like, as you look back, you go, what was that even about? <laughs> Which so is strange. making a roaring comeback right now. Is, is it, it really? I don't, don't you guys see that in like the church merch thing? Like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's kind of different. Is like different? The, the Reese's, what was the one you yeah, talked about in the article? So weird. So weird. Yeah. yeah like the, the Reese's an orange t-shirt that... Mm-hmm steals the Reese's font and Reese's logo and just says Jesus instead. (laughs) (laughs) I never, even as a kid, I never understood. It's genius, I think. (laughs) I'm kidding. And I'm I'm glad we're laughing about this because that's the way I, you know, the pre-internet world is just a different world. And sometimes anachronistically we look back and especially those like you guys um, that have grown up with some degree of churching, um, there's a lot of people our age and younger that have a lot of sincere hurts. And I yep. certainly have those two that I've worked through. But there's also a lot of things like we just need to laugh about, mm-hmm. you know, and realize like people were trying their best. Mm-hmm. I don't know whose idea it was to think of making a Reese's Jesus t-shirt, but they probably <laughs> were well-intended. Yeah. You know, I don't think it was like pure malevolence or anything like that. So it's all right yeah. to laugh about that. Anyways, my particular context. So, you know, when we think of cultures and subcultures and microcultures, you know, I'm an American. So there's obviously that cultural influence. I'm an American that lived in the Midwest that was in an evangelical subculture. So that's why lots of people across different evangelical churches can identify with the power team and that other stuff. But I was also in uh, a charismatic evangelical context. And to be even more specific, by the time I got to the 90s, it was like full-on word of faith, prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. So you have all of those like cultural influences happening. Um, And so when I try to identify like why in my context, which I think there's some resonance with other people if they didn't grow up in like charismatic or word of faith context. They understand what that what I meant by the sentiment of like philosophy was just not very high on our priority list. They mm-hmm. they know that from experience. And I'd I'd identify like a few influences on that. I think one there is we have to identify in evangelical history the influence of pietism on our particular tradition. And one of the things the pietist movement tried to do was to try to make the Bible accessible to everyday lay people. And that's a really good thing. Um, I'm not I'm not bringing that up as necessarily a, a slant or something that was wrong with the movement. But one of the downsides of it was this sense that, well, if everybody can pick up the scriptures and, and read them, which is really good, that was like a reformer, um, uh, you know, impulse. an impulse of the Reformation. There was also along with that, that sense of like, we don't need to consult things like commentaries. Um, mm-hmm. It's not as useful to learn the original language. It's not because we want this to be something you can do in a Bible study in a small group. Um, so there's certainly the pietistic influence, but in my particular um, context for Pentecostals and Charismatics, there was also the sense, and we kind of embraced it. You guys know it too. You kind of embrace the sense that like you guys, we are on sort of like the lower end of the religious status ladder. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of have like the high church, you got the smells, the bells, you got the people that are proper theologians and, you know, the ivory towers. But the Pentecostal tradition embraced like, now this is like poor people, uneducated mm-hmm. people. 
and the spirit has been poured out on all flesh Mm -hmm. and to steal a line from like John Wimber, you get to do the stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of your status. And that's actually a really beautiful thing. But sometimes I think we probably leaned too heavily into that as an identity marker. And in my particular context, that also took the shape of, well, things that looked like, and I, I, I want to use this word cautiously, like more elite um, versions of, of Protestant Christianity, um, more formal, more educated. You know, we kind of took that position of like, well, we, we don't want anything to do with that um, because we have the spirit. So if we have the spirit, we don't need education. Um, and, you know, I'd hear things just even like anecdotes, right, about, well, the disciples were uneducated and it was the Pharisees that were the scholars, right? And it all kind of reinforces <laughs> this notion that um, actually, in some ways, it valorizes being uneducated in a sense. Um, and then this was the phrase I heard all the time where seminaries are cemeteries, right? Mm-hmm. That's I heard that. Go to seminary. Yep. That's the graveyard Mm -hmm. for authentic faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that's an influence. And I'd say like the third thing, and this is, I don't think just unique to my context, but I I would imagine others listening to this would share in this experience. There was such an emphasis, a very unique emphasis on total depravity where um, the emphasis was on the unregenerated soul is incapable of discerning God's truth right? So your faculties of reason are so broken and so sinful that the insights of a non-Christian, whether they were a philosopher, a scientist, a mathematician, just couldn't be trusted because they had not been regenerated yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like philosophy as a discipline that engaged one's faculties of reason was considered to have nothing to do with following God's special revelation, right? So you had these two categories. You got general revelation and special revelation. You know, we didn't necessarily hear a lot about the goodness of general revelation until you got saved, right? Then once you were regenerated, you could begin to properly understand God's world. So anything that had to do with just pure reason, so we were very suspicious of science. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, um, that it was pretty explicitly taught to us that there was like a global conspiracy among all these atheist scientists to tell you things about dinosaurs and fossils <laughs> and carbon dating <laughs> <laughs> that, that were like, just, they were just out there to make you an atheist. Mm-hmm. Like that was their goal. So I think there's these forces at play that was a really unique cocktail. And so philosophy being a discipline of like, we're thinking through, using our faculties of reason um, was just not something that was really celebrated. In fact, I'd go as far as to say it was, it was really discouraged in some sense. I don't know if that was your experience as well. I always laugh at this point because uh, I grew up in it. I was born in Sydney, but I grew up in America from the age of seven, but still in an Australian context because the church that I belong to is, has its roots in Australia. Um, and so these kinds of things are always kind of are lost on me. Like I, not one time in my entire life have I ever heard that seminaries are cemeteries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, it was never imparted to me that there was some uh, global conspiracy ring of atheists trying mm-hmm. to convert me into atheism yeah. because I was learning about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But I believe that, that Alternatively, is Alternatively, I experienced the opposite, <laughs> right? So, 
yeah, we, we always get to have a lot of those fun. Like I remember even just like we've had conversations about purity culture and I would like say stuff that we did in church growing up and he's like, Jaw I didn't even the know table. that existed, like, you know? Shocked. Um, but maybe I experienced, which is why he's been able to pastor me through all my baggage over the years (laughs) of, of the way that I, um, but yeah, yeah, I can totally identify. Can you parse that out a little bit, Paul? Uh, so like the, the, the terminology that comes to my mind when I hear you talking about, um, the role of reason, even an unregenerated people, uh, still having something to contribute to conversations on truth is obviously common grace, but maybe for some of our listeners who maybe are kind of like, well, I don't know. Sure. Maybe. I don't know. Like just parse that out for us. Why, why should yeah. we engage you know, with The funny thing, the side note I'd bring up about this is if you talk to people who let's say didn't, they're still Christians. They didn't grow up in, you know, the, the evangelical subculture, but let's say they were in a Catholic school and you talk to them about like faith and science issues and they're going to look at you strange that's because, and again, I'm not like a Roman Catholic, but built into the larger Roman Catholic theology was comparatively to at least my Protestant evangelical subculture was a broader celebration of the inherent goodness of God's creation. Mm-hmm. So there becomes this like tipping point on one side, if we affirm too much goodness, if you will, to God's creator, and we do not recognize the presence and the activity of the fall and principalities and powers and the brokenness in creation. Mm -hmm. We can veer too much in the side of um, perhaps like a a pure natural theology, Mm -hmm. which means like all we need to know about the world can be deduced using our faculties of reason. Because we can look around the world and go, if the world is inherently good, we'll be able to discern it rightly and to discern what's true about God from the world. And, and there's so much truth to that, but there's also like a dangerous ditch on that side where we discount the revelation of scripture because we have to take seriously like what Paul says, like the message of the cross is foolishness mm-hmm. to those who are perishing, right? There is mm-hmm. something foolish about the cross. Um, for for Luther, it was like the hiddenness of God and that there's a tension there. The tension that I think like I would say in and I've talked to a lot of people that have spent a lot of time in those similar contexts that I I grew up in was if you go on the other ditch too far you run the risk of like a strange sort of gnosticism where the world is fundamentally the material world is fundamentally sinful and mm-hmm. broken. And mm-hmm. so you cannot trust disciplines like science and math and employ your faculties of reason or your empirical senses because the world is so sinful and it's Mm -hmm. so broken. And what that ends up producing, and I saw it a lot in charismatic culture, and I still consider myself a charismatic. Um, I saw a lot in charismatic culture where um, this heavy, heavy emphasis on the depravity and the brokenness of the world and actually the power in some sense of Satan to blind the minds of not just believer, unbelievers, but believers too at times led people to this strange Gnosticism again, where it was like the only thing we can trust is um, special revelation, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've got the scriptures and then we have, again, in some contexts, like charismatic contexts, we have like the inner witness of the spirit. Mm-hmm. So practically, this even plays out in 
some really unique ways where you can talk to people that have come out of really deeply charismatic cultures that maybe verged on the side of almost Gnosticism. And you go, I talk to people that have come out of like, I won't name specific places, but particular contexts where they felt like they couldn't even decide on what sandwich to make themselves for lunch unless they had some sort of inner witness from the spirit. Mm-hmm. Because they couldn't trust that mm-hmm. God's goodness you said common grace, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't trust that their faculties of reason could discern God's goodness in the world in a sense mm-hmm. where they could just go, well, this might just be a good sandwich to eat. Now, that's like that a really good. trivial example, mm-hmm. but extrapolated out, um, it has a lot, of, a lot of devastating impact on the way Christians engage with science, with music, and the arts. You know, how many of us had this sense in which there clearly was Christian music and secular music as if there is a sacred E minor chord and a satanic E minor chord, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, <laughs> have, you seen that, yeah. have you seen that video of the, it was probably in the nineties of that guy that was talking about like playing on like the drum the beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the yep. offbeat. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> totally. Uh, there's maybe one way to, good to understand this, and sorry, you're speaking so eloquently and beautifully right now, but I thought maybe one good clarifying thing. So like when, I think it's in the ask, seek, knock passage, right? When Jesus says, if you then being who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Um, so Jesus uses the word evil there. Would it be best to understand that as the world is neither inherently good which we know it's not, but it's also not inherently evil in the most extreme way that we can understand that word. Maybe it's inherently given over to corruption and already inherently corrupted. And so we mm-hmm. as Christians who are living in a larger meta narrative have to engage with all kinds of disciplines and uh, fit them within God's story um, because we understand the presence and the uh, ongoing potential for corruption in all kinds of spheres. Totally. Completely agree. And I think like one of the essential texts we could go to if we're trying to build a, I think a more healthy biblical theology of this mm-hmm. is to go to John 1 and to really lay out a proper historic Christology of the Logos. You know, John's argument in John 1 was not just about a pre-incarnate Christ, the word that would become flesh, right? You know, that's not just an apologetic for those that thought that Jesus was just simply a mere mortal human mm-hmm. being. Um, it was that, but also like if you continue on, right? Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You know, mm-hmm. I do think there is, I would go as far as to say like there is an inherent original, maybe original is a better word, Mm-hmm. An original goodness to creation that all Christians have historically affirmed. And yes, there's brokenness. But John also says this, that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Mm-hmm. So as we temper these tensions, like we want to assign, I would argue, we want to assign um, a very um, sobering amount of... Um, authority, if you will, to fallen principalities and powers in this world. But we also need to affirm that the light, wherever it happens in the world, wherever there's light, 
And whether the illumination of truth, goodness, and beauty, these are again, like maybe more Neoplatonic, um, the transcendentals that the church co-opted later, but mm-hmm. whether we, wherever we see truth, goodness, and beauty, it is the light of Christ and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, so we can't simultaneously, we can simultaneously affirm like the world is broken. The presence of sin is real. There are fallen principalities and powers. And yet the light shines in the darkness and the Mm -hmm. darkness has not overcome it. So wherever we see beautiful music, um, there's no, there's no beautiful music that's genuinely beautiful. That points us in a direction of awe and wonder to continue on Romans one. When we settle for the created thing above the creator, Mm -hmm. this is where idolatry happens. But the Mm -hmm. point of any um, symbol image, whether it's a beautiful landscape that we walk through, a forest, all of this as part of Paul's theology in Romans 1 is to point us to the invisible creator. So if we continue on in that journey, whether it's in math and science, and I'm filled with wonder by what a scientist discovers and it points me upward and onward um, and helps me doxologically respond in worship to Christ. I see it as something that we could probably use a bit more celebration, a little less Mm -hmm. consternation about. Mm -hmm. I think of Romans 2, 6, too, where Paul says, for when Gentiles, which here he means unbelieving Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul seems to have the sense that even on a moral level, um, there's, uh, there's something in everybody. And I think right. that, that that should be a, a, something that we embrace readily because um, I think on a philosophical level, we would say that that's a doorway into saving faith is to go, well, why do I have this desire, these warring desires within me between the good and the evil? And how do I know what's good and evil in the first place? And like C.S. Lewis's analogy of the straight and the crooked line, right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the easiest questions I'll pose to people who are trying to work through this stuff is like, like, do you really believe there's another source of goodness besides Christ? Mm -hmm. Is there another source of truth? besides Christ. Like, so when I look at a simple math problem and I go, man, there's harmony and beauty in this equation and it works. Like, was there another source of that math equation functioning and it working? Is there another source of goodness? Is there another source of truth? Is there another source of beauty? And I think Christians have historically affirmed, no, there isn't. Mm -hmm. The fount of it all is Christ. The fount of all truth, goodness, and beauty is Christ. Now, the thing that people can sometimes get concerned about is like, well, are you talking about some sort of form of relativism? Mm -hmm. Um, No, like we have to have a hermeneutic key for interpreting what's true, good, and beautiful. And see, this is where Christians can say it's cruciform. It's a cruciform shape. So what's true, good, and beautiful, we have to go and be like, well, that's true, that's good, that's beautiful. But we're when we say those things, we're appealing to some other source already. And so for me as a Christian, I go, well, the hermeneutic key is Christ. The hermeneutic key to read this when I look and go, well, is that ethical or not ethical? You know, I don't just say like, 
I, I don't just say, well, that's that's ethical, so it has to be in harmony with the Spirit of God. I have to really grapple with God's special revelation in Christ to see what is the shape of goodness in the world. So that to me would be uh, maybe the way I would suggest to maybe best handle some of those those tensions. Yeah, it's really good. And I would just say for me, and I don't know if you align with this, I, I think you do, but none of this is, um, none of it is antithetical to being saved by grace through faith. We're not talking about no. salvation here. We're just talking about how God has shed his grace abroad in humanity. And mm -hmm. the opportunity for the Christian is to look for the opportunities to help people connect dots between what they possess and the source of where that possession comes from so that hopefully they will humble themselves and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and come into his kingdom. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like Paul in uh, the Areopagus kind of vibe. Yes. Yeah. And what does he do? And is that Acts 16 or 17 on Mars Hill? Somewhere around there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, when he speaks to the philosophers at Athens, he actually quotes two worship songs that were dedicated to Zeus and he reappropriates them. It's really mm -hmm. interesting. You know, in him, we live and move and have our being wasn't a psalm that he was quoting. <laughs> it was a Greek poem of worship to Zeus. And here he goes, like, the thing wow. you guys were looking for in that, mm -hmm. though it is been misplaced, let me like help reorient you towards mm -hmm. the truth, even in your honest seeking and your honest um, desire for the truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really good. I want to get to... I, I, I definitely some of the secular aid stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, because yeah. I... And I want to save some time at the end for this talk on beauty, because you, I think, kind of talk about that in such a, a brilliant way. But give us like a, as a, a quick breakdown on sort of like secular age. You say that essentially what you're seeing is the death of the secular age. Um, you talk a lot about sort of like this current cultural moment that we're in and some signs that we're maybe moving into, you know, what you call the death of the secular age. Can you just maybe mm -hmm. give us a quick breakdown so that someone who's listening can like understand exactly what you mean by that? And then maybe what yeah. are some of the signs in the world and culture that you're seeing that would, would um, lead you to think that? Yeah, I mean, there'd be no way of re me re really doing a good job of distilling like Charles Taylor's like 900 page book, A Secular Age, but maybe a, a question that could provoke people to understand what Taylor was getting at in his book, A Secular Age, mm -hmm. um, is to ask the question, the simple question of why, if you were to take a time travel machine with Marty McFly and you go back, you know, 700 years, you plop yourself anywhere in Europe and you go up to somebody on the street and you ask them, do you believe in God? why would everybody look at you strange? Like, how is that even a question? Mm -hmm. Whereas today, that's a viable question. Mm -hmm. So the secular age refers to this time period, this shift in consciousness, the shift in, in Western thought, where that is a, actually a viable question for a lot of people. Like you could actually go up to somebody on the street and go, do you believe in God? And they go, well, you know, maybe, maybe not, right? There's a plurality. That wasn't an option 700 mm -hmm. years ago. You know, a thousand years ago, everybody, and now there were different notions of what God was like, but we live in an era in which Taylor called the secular age, and he had three different, you know, qualifiers to that word secular. But in short, like we live in an era in which faith 
is faith in God is one option among many. As as we've lived through this, we've assumed that this is normal, right? We've just been programmed with this way of thinking. Even if you grew up in the church, mm-hmm. like if you grew up in the church, you were existing in a subculture that was still underneath in some sense, a larger macro culture with larger values, right? I mean, you were talking about the difference between being an evangelical in Australia versus an evangelical mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. right? Why is that? It's because there's a larger macro culture that even American evangelical culture sits underneath. So we get born in to a world in which um, even if you went to a Christian school, didn't go to public school, it seems to be there in media, in film, in television, in the books that you read, where reality was bifurcated into two categories. You had imminence and transcendence. And uh, you could say it another way is the, 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 the spiritual and the That's secular, factual. the sacred mm-hmm. and the secular. Mm-hmm. As the secular age, which was a process in which, you know, we're talking like hundreds of years of Western thought and history, what we saw was the secular box, the box that was for things that were um, neutral, non-religious, grew and expanded. While the spiritual box, the, 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 the transcendent box became something more private, individual and smaller. So the secular space was supposed to be the space where we could all share in a pluralistic culture with people. We could all go to the mall and not kill each other, right? <laughs> like why could you go to the mall or go to a public school and not kill each other even though there's a plurality of different perspectives of different religious beliefs there is because that secular story – over the top said, well, this is a neutral space. And to get along here, we have to remove ourselves from any sort of worship. There are no gods in this space. Mm. What people are starting to realize is that that's, that's been a myth. There's never been a purely neutral space that we inhabit. And what even like, um, you know, I, I've had some really great conversations with behavioral scientists and cognitive scientists that have been studying this phenomenon. Um, Clay Rutledge is one, John Verveke is another. And these guys are not like professing Christians. John considers himself, he's at the University of Toronto, he considers himself a non-theist. But what these what these scientists are observing is that people are inherently like, we're like inherently a rel- religious species mm-hmm. because religion has to do with what is of ultimate concern. You know, that's, you know, that was one of the definitions the 20th century Paul Tillich gave for what God is. God is what is of ultimate concern to us in an existential mm-hmm. sense. So people always have what's of ultimate concern to them. And they have narratives and stories and practices that affirm those things as of ultimate concern. So like let's take the mall, for example. Like when we go to the mall, we don't kill each other, maybe because in some sense, and I don't want to make this too extreme, but um, in some sense, like mammon is God at the mall. Mm-hmm. Like, we're there to all shop. We're there to all satisfy our needs, that ancient God of greed, mammon, right? Um, when you go to an NFL football game, though people come from all sorts of different walks of life, there is a guiding story. There is a liturgy at an NFL football game. Mm-hmm. There's an ecology of practices and there is something that when you're gathered there is like, hey, this is of ultimate concern. And I want to bring this up to not get into like culture war stuff, but just as a great example of this, 
think about what would happen if you're in an NFL game and the national anthem is played and you don't adopt the proper physical response of adoration and devotion when the national anthem is happening, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've seen this. And again, I don't want to get into like the culture war stuff about that, but there's a Mm -hmm. deeper point there. So if the the religious norm, if you will, is to to stand and put your hand over your heart and remove your caps, if this truly was a neutral space, like free of any claims to what should be of ultimate concern, then no one should have any problem if somebody wants to take a knee, if they want to do jumping jacks. But that's not the case. Like mm-hmm. we know we've seen this happen. So there are stories about what should be of ultimate concern in these neutral spaces. And I talked about in the piece, two of the big ones were, of course, mammon, greed. Mm-hmm. Like we remove, um, let's say in the Nietzschean sort of death of God, we might say, well, we, we're, we're going to put away the Christian story and the Christian conceptions of God. And we're going to have this neutral space here. But it's not neutral, right? Like mm-hmm. um, we've seen in our own culture, like the devaluing. Uh, just look back. I think there's just a couple examples we can even look around the, our, our own culture and go like up until recently, like, okay, if you were – you guys are – you know, it, you guys seem fashionable young gentlemen here, right? <laughs> if you were to go out and buy a house and you had your choice between like a – uh, you know, let's say like an early 20th century Tudor home, especially if you could put money into it mm-hmm. or like an eight late eighties split level entry home, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know, which one you're picking right. and you yeah, look at the two all and the you way. go, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I, we, our first home was a eighties split level entry. So that's yeah, why I pick uh-huh. on that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, why is it that that thing you could almost say is objectively, it's hard to say this when it comes to beauty. Why is it less beautiful? Mm-hmm. Why do we um, see in some sense like a devaluing of beauty in our architecture, brutalist architecture? When was the last time like you even looked around a church, a new church building that went up and you went like, gosh, this? why does this just look like a warehouse and not a beautiful cathedral like what mm-hmm. we used to, mm-hmm. like what humans and Christians used to do? And I, I do think in some sense it's because there's a larger principality like greed where we got to get – we got to maximize profits. And if we're going to maximize profits, we can't hire these skilled craftsmen to do these intricate details on our front doors or stained glass window. So I would say that's one example of – and people are becoming more aware of this too. I'd say one other practical thing is like 10, 15 years ago, I would sit down with college age people. And and, and this is what I mean by saying, I think we're leaving the secular age. The secular myth is kind of, it's, it's lifting off of people. Uh, I'd sit down with young people 10, 15 years ago who were deconstructing, they were leaving considering leaving the church. And one of their biggest attractions was like Richard Dawkins and new atheism. Mm-hmm. When I sit down with younger people that are entering into their twenties and they're wrestling with their faith, I don't, and this is just anecdote. I don't find anybody anymore that's attracted mm-hmm. to Richard Dawkins and new mm-hmm. atheism. Do you? Mm-hmm. No. No. It, mm-hmm. So, and, and Dawkins was in some sense like peak of what secularity was supposed to be, right? Right. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is remove all of these old religious myths and dispel these notions of I, the, the derivative term you always used was some sky daddy out there. And what we're going to get is some perfect human utopia. 
mm-hmm. and it didn't happen. No. And people see that now. They're not attracted to that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not attracted to new atheism. They're not attracted to reductive physicalism. So they're listening to Joe Rogan talk mm-hmm. about DMT and psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Right. And when he talks about it, he and you talk to anybody mm-hmm. that's done psychedelics, I don't know anybody. And I, I've, I've talked over the last four years with quite a few people that have either been like serious psychonauts or have just experimented with it. I don't know anybody that goes, well, I think all that I experienced on DMT or with psilocybin with psychedelic mushrooms was just like a hallucination of my material brain. Mm-hmm. Nobody, th- I, I don't know mm-hmm. anybody that thinks that. Mm-hmm. They're they all they're intrigued. having a genuine spiritual experience. Yes. So that's what's happening is they are intrigued by the possibility of transcendence. Mm-hmm. And so the secular age tried to keep all transcendence at bay because those those old gods like Mammon and Greed, Molech, mm-hmm. um, they know what genuine beauty does. It provokes us to look upward and beyond the created thing to the creator. And I think what we're experiencing, and I'm not like making a case for psychedelics, just hear me out here. (laughs) But when people have those experiences, they go, "Uh, no, there's transcendence. They're not sure what it is, but they know this imminent frame, Mm -hmm. the materialist story can't contain it all. And I think that's what people experience when they listen to like a beautiful piece of music. Mm-hmm. They um, encounter beauty somewhere in some profound way. They, they, you know, experience the birth of a child. These substantial moments that are packed mm-hmm. with transcendence. They're packed with the glory of God. Mm-hmm. But they go. I, I, I don't think when I'm looking out at a sunrise, you know, I'm maybe on an anniversary vacation with my wife and we we go out and we look at a sunset together. That experience that we have can't just be broken down by Neil deGrasse Tyson as some, mm-hmm. you know, here's what's happening in astronomy today. Mm-hmm. Like there's something transcendent about that experience that beckons people. And I think that pressure is building to a breaking point where the secular story just can't contain the glory of God in the world. Mm-hmm. It makes me really think about um, the role of beauty in conjunction with the role, I guess, of like preaching and teaching and how churches need to pursue again uh, excellence in both spheres. You know, love them or hate them, people have very strong opinions on uh, Mark Driscoll. But he said something last year that I found quite striking. Uh, I can't preach the gospel to you by making a sandwich. I can't preach the gospel to you by doing a demonstrative act, right? It, it has to be preached. It has to be told. Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And, but I can make you a beautiful sandwich and open you up with beauty and then bring the gospel to you in word as well. And so I think that there's, to me, I just hear a, a, a theology for it's really important for churches to pursue and provide beauty that opens people up to hearing the gospel. Yeah, well, what what is a word? You know, words are symbols. You know, um, language is the codification of written symbols and sounds, but they point to something else, and this is what the arts do as well. You know, um, Dwight Hopkins, who I believe he's still at the University of, uh, of Chicago, 
in his sort of cultural theology, he laid out sort of the three domains of culture, spirit, aesthetic, and labor. And spirit would be that sort of in a culture, the invisible stories, the, the high ideals and values of that culture. Aesthetic is the dimension of culture in which we try to somehow bring that spirit into some sort of visible or audible expression that allows people to connect with it. And I, I've always found that to be an incredibly helpful framework. So whether it's like in the spoken word, the, the proclamation of the gospel with scripture or with clear propositions, like doctrinal propositions, whatever the case may be, we still have to recognize those are symbols of a higher reality, right? They don't contain all of it. They themselves are still doorways. And the thing that I would say, like part of my soteriology is it's, you know, it's the person of Christ that actually brings us into that transformative salvific union. It's union with Christ, not with ideas, mm -hmm. with propositions. Otherwise, right, the demons would be saved, mm -hmm. you know, because they have the propositional knowledge. But what, and this is some like language from my, again, my friend John Verveke, um, who talks about the four P's of knowledge, propositions, procedural knowledge. So like how to make a sandwich you'd actually have to like maybe watch somebody do it and try it yourself. You couldn't just give somebody like a, a PDF and says, you know, just a bunch of texts and say, this is how you make a sandwich or how you play baseball. You'd have to learn the procedural knowledge. There's per, uh, perspectival knowledge. And then there's participatory knowledge that comes from like when you actually participate. I, I don't know if you guys are, are married or have children or not, but, mm -hmm. but there's a knowledge that you have if you're married of your wife that comes in a way that can't be reducible to someone writing a book about her mm -hmm. just isn't it comes through participation i'm still like charismatic and pentecostal enough to believe that it's the indwelling of the spirit that brings me into this union with christ it's a participatory mm -hmm. union of which the symbol of the spoken word can make me aware of god's goodness in a way that invites me into it. Mm -hmm. So in the same way of a, a marriage ceremony, is it the vows that make me married? It certainly is a big part of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, is it the kiss that makes me married? <laughs> you know, Is it just the ceremony itself? It's like multi-layered. Multi and so mm -hmm. um, I, I just think- like that Paul calls it folly, right? The folly of preaching. It but is. It's a, it's a wonderful folly that God it has is. Raised. Yeah. Totally, totally is. And so what I'm I'm actually encouraged by, and I'm I'm seeing this in more Protestant and evangelical contexts, and I, I still consider myself both both of those those things, is I, I'm seeing um, a greater awareness of the different spiritual practices that the church has employed. I think of Robert Robert Weber, you know, the ancient future movement. There's been different practices across the church that the church has employed to bring us into greater awareness of God's goodness and his mm -hmm. story. And it hasn't just been merely the preaching and proclamation of mm -hmm. the gospel in spoken word. It's also in now evangelicals kind of do this one already. It's obviously the arts and music. But I'm really fascinated as to how churches and Christian communities are recovering the visual arts too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we do at my church, we do um, every Advent and Lent season, we do a, a visual arts gallery where 
anybody in the church, any skill range, any experience, any age can contribute a piece of art that is within the themes of Advent or, you know, we're, we're starting it this week because mm-hmm. this week begins Lent. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having people contribute pieces about Lent and, and Easter and it like adorns the walls of our foyer. It's just one little thing to affirm that there is more than just the symbolic beauty of music at our disposal. We have, mm-hmm. we have the visual arts as well. And I'm, I'm encouraged to see like there's more evangelical thoughtfulness mm-hmm. around this stuff happening. And I'm, I'm actually greatly encouraged mm-hmm. by it. And that we're even having this discussion is, yeah. is really cool. That's really cool, man. Mm-hmm. Very compelling. Yeah. Maybe like, do we have like two minutes yeah. for him to like wrap? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the end of the secular age, to me, I hear that as an opportunity, but I'm sure that it's also fraught with all kinds of obstacles. Can you kind of just uh, be a little prescient for a moment and forecast out what you think that looks like? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, it's ripe with opportunities. There's certainly op- uh, also the potential pitfalls mm-hmm. as well. Um, the opportunities that emerge for us are, n- I think there's changing attitudes in the general public about religion in our secular spheres. And you see this in, I'm seeing this in movies more and more as well. Um, I just saw a trailer recently for a film in which Mark Wahlberg is playing a Catholic priest, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's presented in a way Mel Gibson is in it as well. And many of the the films that might be about faith or um, TV series about faith in the secular age would highlight the negative effects of them, the scandals, the things that plague the church. But I, I, I'm seeing an increasing openness towards religious experience mm-hmm. that I actually think gives us a fruitful opportunity to tell what I think is the true story of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And I think people are very much open to having those sorts of dialogues. Um, certainly there's, there's pitfalls as well. You know, um, there's this D DIY spirituality, which we are still very much as Americans and Westerners in general, we still have this very high value for individualism. And one of the things that we've already seen, and we saw it in Taylor's secular age as well, is that, you know, people can try a bit of yoga on Monday, they can do CrossFit on Tuesday, they can meditate on Wednesday, they can go to an Ash Wednesday uh, service. Um, and then on Thursday, you know, they might try, you know, some some Buddhist meditation, like, uh, without picking on each one of those things and going, this is wrong, this is right. I'm just saying, there's a there's still the possibility that people can be under these sorts of old principalities and powers where Mm -hmm. you can do this stuff and yet there's still a sense in which you're a slave to greed and mammon Mm -hmm. at the same time Mm -hmm. because now you've just incorporated some self-care practices but you haven't committed yourself to one story and one community of Mm -hmm. people to do it together Mm -hmm. and you haven't committed yourself to the hard work Mm -hmm. of christian community Mm -hmm. which is difficult Mm -hmm. and it's like only in that place and i'm not just saying like an official institute church i know there's a lot of people that are doing like house church stuff and micro church stuff and i want to celebrate that but i'm saying like you can't journey with christ as a lone individual Mm -hmm. that's just not how it works so I, i do have concerns about people that are like just taking in the sort of like DIY spirituality and go, I'll grab a bit of this. It's like the buffet. And like, I love, you know, 
there's certainly a lot of benefit to like breathing exercises. I think there's scientific reasons for that as well. I think that's part of God's general revelation. But when people do this stuff and they never actually commit themselves to community mm-hmm. together, um, I, I think they miss out on like one of the primary modes of our own sanctification or to take mm-hmm. the Eastern Orthodox language, theosis. The thing that transforms us is when we get together with other people and like, Dude, I hate your guts. You annoy me so much. But we both, we both. That's like, what he says to me every time we hang out. I've I'm literally never figure, said that to him in I'm my entire life. He's out. making that up. <laughs> yeah, but the, like we're bonded together by something bigger than this, and it's mm-hmm. not politics. It's not a political story. It's not NFL football. Those have been all the substitute religions of the past that people have found themselves bonded together with, and it's just not. There's good things in politics. There's good things in NFL football games, but it is not the highest story that can be told. Right. And so to commit ourselves to the highest truth, the the fount of truth, goodness, and beauty, and to do that in community together, um, I think there's opportunity for that. And I think uh, as the secular age slowly begins to collapse more and more, there's a great opportunity Mm -hmm. for us to be um, agents of renewal Mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, I love that a whole lot. And I think on like an, an eschatological level, it seems to me, you know, no matter, no matter where someone falls in terms of how much the kingdom will arrive before Christ returns, at a minimum, the church is an enclave of the kingdom throughout the earth. And so as we seek that together, we find the kingdom in our midst. And man, yeah. what a beautiful thing to be a part of. Paul, you are yes. a delight. Thank yeah. you so much for this incredible you guys as well. conversation. Thank you. This was yeah. a blast. Thank you so much. Yeah. We'll definitely love to have you on again. And this just conversation keep, needed keep to talk two and a half this. hours. I know. Sure. I know. Yeah. I, I wish. Wish we could keep going. Yep. Um, awesome. Paul, where can people find you online quickly? Um, just give us your yeah, YouTube I, podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. The name of the podcast again is Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. Um, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a YouTube channel as well. I'm hit or miss in how active I use the YouTube channel. It's uh, it's a little more difficult process to do all the video editing than just putting out an audio podcast, as you guys know. Um, <laughs> but you can connect me on Twitter or on Instagram as well. Um, yeah, Paul awesome. Ann Leitner at those places. Great. Awesome. God bless you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for your time. Yeah.